everyone. I'm happy to announce that I'll be participating in an all-day podcast-a-thon on February 20th from noon to midnight Eastern to raise money for The Charlie Project. The Charlie Project is an independently operated website and database that seeks to promote and provide information for missing person cases in America. The website features over 14,000 cold cases and is managed and updated by a single person. Her name's Megan Good on a very meager annual donation-based budget of less than $10,000. The Charlie Project has been integral to the research of this podcast and many of your other favorite true crime podcasts. So a bunch of us are getting together to host this podcast-a-thon to help Megan improve the site and make this full-time and critical endeavor more viable. Join me and some of your other favorite true crime podcasts like The Trail Went Cold, True Crime Bullshit, Wine and Crime, all Crime No Cattle, and many, many more. Join us on Get Vocal on February 20th to help raise support for The Charlie Project. I'll include the link in the show notes, so if you want to donate ahead of time, you can. It's been a while since I've introduced you to some of my favorite shows, so I'm going to play a couple of trailers for you on some of the true crime podcasts that I actually listen to. So here they are, and enjoy. Hey listeners, if you're tuning into this show, one, you have good taste, and two, you might enjoy another show that we host called Death by Champagne, the podcast here to keep you up at night. I'm Mackenzie. And I'm Olivia. We have topics in all realms, from the reality of true crime to the depths of the occult. We have dozens of episodes to binge that range from hair-raising scares to infuriating miscarriages of justice. We've covered everything from the origins of Satan to the crimes of an unidentified serial killer in our hometown of St. Louis. Other episodes include tales of unsolved mysteries, murder investigations, disappearances, cold cases, hauntings, folklore, and people in history that are stranger than fiction. In season three, you can join us for a true crime book club, giving in-depth coverage on cases living in the darkest corners of our bookshelves. Our first multi-part series is on the crimes of Gary Ridgway, focusing on his family, victims, and survivors. So grab your cat keychain, surround yourself in a salt circle, lock your doors, and unlock that phone. Hail Satan. And pop some bottles. Mens rea, the guilty mind. It's the intent needed to prove certain crimes, such as murder. Join me, your host Sinead, as I explore the stories of missing women, abusive husbands, jealous brothers, and the silence of the Irish countryside. Then follow these stories to the historic buildings of the UK and Ireland for the legal argument to prove guilt. Mens Rea releases new episodes every second Sunday, so for true crime from the Emerald Isle. Join me. And until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Hey everybody, this is Eric Carter Landine, the host and producer of True Consequences Podcast. True Consequences is a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico and the American Desert Southwest. 
I started this show to bring light to cases that need to be solved in my state. You see, my brother was murdered 33 years ago, and his murderer still walks free. So I cover cases with an empathetic lens, because I understand what it's like to seek justice for a family member. I hope you'll give True Consequences a chance. You can find me wherever you listen to podcasts. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. 911 dispatchers are often the unsung heroes of emergency services. They work behind the scenes, acting as the first responder for numerous traumatic events. Nearly 40% of dispatchers experience burnout, which is almost double the burnout rate for normal jobs. However, Most dispatchers believe they are safe both on and off the job. Unfortunately, this isn't always true, particularly for today's case. Okay, on to the show. On December 21st, 2011, Donna Natsky, a 911 dispatcher, attended a Christmas party with her boyfriend, Kevin Duck, and her mother, Doris Smith. The party was held at the home of Scott and Sandra Randall in the village. Randall was the general manager of the Property Owners Association at the time. Dawn was drinking her usual Miller Lite, and Kevin had a glass goblet of red wine. Hot Springs Village is a gated community in Arkansas, which sits between two counties, Garland and Saline. In 2010, the population of Hot Springs Village was 12,807, making it the largest gated community in the United States. The village is predominantly a retirement community, as the median age is 69 years old, compared to the statewide median age of 38. Hot Springs Village spans 26,000 acres and is governed by the Property Owners Association, which is a private, tax-exempt property owners association. The Property Owners Association is managed daily by approximately 475 employees, working in one of six departments. Administration, golf, planning and inspection, public safety, public works, and recreation. There is also an architectural control committee to ensure all buildings conform to the policy and building codes of Hot Springs Village. The village has very detailed instructions on all public areas and also on how yards should be maintained. The village has a lower crime rate than the rest of the state, 1 in 81 versus 1 in 28, or one crime for every four acres. The city of Hot Springs, labeled as America's First Resort, sits 30 minutes southwest of Hot Springs Village and sits within the Hot Springs National Park. Hot Springs was once the vacation locale of notorious gangsters such as Bugs Moran, Lucky Luciano, and Al Capone. Illegal gambling was prevalent in Hot Springs and eventually Owen Madden showed up in 1935. Owen was British but had grown up in New York in the neighborhood of Hell's Kitchen. Owen is credited with organizing organized crime. After he arrived in Hot Springs, word spread and it became a safe haven for gangsters who were hiding from law enforcement. 
This continued until the 1960s when the federal government cracked down on illegal gambling. Donna had worked for the Hot Springs Police Department for six years and was well regarded by her co-workers. 2011 was difficult for Donna because her husband of 20 years filed for divorce out of the blue. However, before the divorce was final, Donna began dating Kevin Duck, who was 18 years younger than she was. However, according to Donna's mother, Doris, Donna was growing tired of Kevin by the Christmas party. One thing that had soured Donna was when Kevin moved into her home one day without her permission and while she was at work. Doris said Kevin tried to win Donna over with lavish presents and constant attention, which Donna wasn't used to. But the attention turned into possessiveness that Doris was not comfortable with. Kevin always had his hands on her, whether it was her leg or rubbing her back, or even the teenage boy prank of snapping her bra. Donna's son Ronnie said to be that protective and handsy with her was concerning. There had been rumors that Donna was secretly dating one of the officers she worked with, and that was what precipitated Kevin's move into her home. She seemed to want to try to make the relationship work and was excited about the invitation to the Christmas party. However, at the last minute, Donna asked her mother to accompany them to the party, something she had started doing more and more often. Doris said Donna told her the night before the party that she was going to see about having Kevin kicked out of her home. Donna and Kevin picked up Doris for the Christmas party, and Doris noticed that Donna looked on the verge of tears. Her nose was red, which was usually a clear sign she was trying not to cry. As mentioned previously, the couple both drank that night, but neither appeared very happy. Around 10 o'clock, Donna went outside to smoke a cigarette, and when she came back inside, she was crying. She went to her mother and hugged her and said she was crying over the legal situation with her estranged husband, Todd. Still crying, Donna walked into the bathroom and her friend, Patty Hathaway, followed her. Patty was yelling at Donna to throw Kevin out, not realizing Kevin was outside the bathroom door, listening. He actually barged in and then let her out of the party, pushing her out the front door. The couple did not get Donna's mother, nor did they say goodbye to anyone at the party. Patty saw Kevin pushing Donna outside and was not happy about it. Kevin still had his wine glass in his hand when he walked outside, and afterwards, Sharon Randall found a broken wine glass stem outside. One of Randall's neighbors later told investigators she had heard what she could describe only as the blood-curdling scream of a man in a fit of rage, then a car door slamming and tires peeling on the pavement. Doris waited for an hour before getting a ride home from a friend. She got ready for bed and then lay awake, worried about her daughter. At 2.21 a.m., her phone rang, and it was Kevin. He said, Miss Doris? Which he never did. Like all of Donna's friends, he usually called her mom. He asked her if Donna was there, and Doris replied, No, she's with you. She left me at the party with no way home. Kevin, 
quickly hung up. He called her back at 6.45 a.m. and said he slept on the couch and Donna had left, so he figured she was with Doris. Again, he hung up quickly. Doris said Donna did not drive after dark because her eyesight was so poor. Later, Kevin contradicted his story to police, saying he did not wake up until 7.30 and found Donna gone then. A short while later, Patty sent a text to Donna, angry that she had witnessed Kevin pushing her. She received an odd reply. He didn't push me. I fell and he caught me. I had taken a pain pill and was tore up. Patty thought the message was odd because there was little punctuation and tore was misspelled. Donna's youngest son, Brandon, woke around 5.45 a.m. and saw his mother's car still in the driveway. She had ordinarily left for work by that time, but unbeknownst to him, she had taken a vacation day that day. However, just a few minutes later, some of her friends saw the car speeding through an intersection heading towards her office. Moments later, the car vanished. Brandon asked Kevin later if he knew where his mother was and when they had returned home. Kevin said they had returned home around 10.30 and watched TV together. Brandon knew this was untrue because he had been up until midnight. Donna's sons were concerned because Kevin Duck had a violent past. He had assaulted two exes and had even beaten his own two-year-old daughter savagely with a PVC pipe. Her sons began contacting all of her friends to see if they had seen her, and by the morning of December 23rd, they went to the Hot Springs Police Department to notify her co-workers she had not been seen since the night before. Her friends and co-workers immediately suspected foul play. At 11.15 a.m. on December 22nd, a U.S. Forestry Service worker found a car smoldering in the woods, eight miles from the intersection of Arkansas Highways 298 and 7. The car had burned so hot, parts of the aluminum engine block had melted into slag. The car was a Ford Escort station wagon, which was the same car Donna drove. Unfortunately, the car was not reported to the Hot Springs Village Police Department until Christmas Eve. In large part, this was because Donna was not reported missing until December 23rd, and a BOLO, or Be on the Lookout Bulletin, was not issued until that morning. A Hot Springs Village detective sent a flatbed truck to pick up the car, and it was hauled, uncovered, to the Hot Springs Village PD, where it sat for four days before being processed by the Arkansas State Crime Lab. The area where Donna's car was located was not searched until the day after Christmas. Search dogs were used that day, and again on December 28th. On the morning of December 31st, 500 volunteers showed up at the Jesseville gym to lead their own search efforts. No law enforcement from Garland County Sheriff's Department or the Hot Spring Village Police Department were there. However, a very surprising volunteer turned up, Kevin Duck's father. Jeff Meek, a reporter for the Hot Springs Village Voice, was listening to train searchers divide people into groups and overheard someone say, Shell Store, which is where Kevin Duck worked. Jeff turned around and asked the man if he could interview him, and that's when he found out it was Luther Duck. 
Luther told Jeff about his son's violence and some other family issues. As the two men were talking, Jeff heard a slight commotion and saw that the women who had previously passed out maps were now crying. 45 minutes into the search effort, Donna's remains had been found. Donna was found floating at the edge of George Spears' curved pond, which was a cattail-covered, muddy pond on West Main Hall Road, about six miles from where her car was found. There were tire tracks that indicated a car had backed up to the edge of the pond. As the chatter grew, Luther told Jeff he had told Hot Springs Village Police to search that area days before. Horrifyingly, Doris found out about the discovery of the car and her daughter's body through Facebook posts. Kevin Duck was nowhere to be found. His probation officer soon learned his contact numbers were no longer working. An investigator from the Arkansas State Police soon located Kevin in South Louisiana and interviewed him there on January 13th. On January 25th, a warrant was issued for Kevin's arrest on a parole and probation violation since he had left the area without reporting it to his officer. Kevin was extradited back to Arkansas, where he posted a $15,000 bond. The night Donna's body was found, Nancy Grace covered the case on her popular CNN show of the same name. In her usual style, Nancy and her producers highlighted the failings of the police, such as not getting search dogs in the area earlier. She talked about the Forestry Service not reporting the car until a few days after finding it, but an FBI spokesperson from Little Rock said burned cars were common in the Washita National Forest. Donna's sister, Vicky, was a call-in guest on Nancy's show that night. As Nancy erupted into her diatribe about the police botching the investigation, Vicky defended them, saying the bolo was issued as soon as Donna was listed as a missing person. She said, The police did not botch this. They were looking for her. They love her. That's what is so aggravating in all this. We, the police department, come to our house and give us reports all the time. As Nancy said she hated that there were hours missed from the discovery of the vehicle, Vicky firmly interrupted her two different times with no. Vicky did admit she found out about the discovery of the car while looking on Facebook for any information on Donna. A former investigator turned author called in and pointed out that Kevin needed to be investigated thoroughly because he was the last person who saw her and he had previous convictions for domestic battery. One of Nancy's forensic experts, former chief medical examiner of Bear County, said the car was likely burned to destroy trace forensic evidence because it was probably used as a transport vehicle. The autopsy results revealed Donna had been brutally beaten, but was still alive when she was put in the pond, based on the water found in her lungs. A memorial service was planned for Donna for January 4, 2012. The memorial was held at the Village Church of Christ in Hot Springs Village. The memorial service was completely planned by Donna's three sons and their minister. The Patriot Guard, a group of motorcyclists who usually attend military funerals, but also attended those of family members who died tragically and unexpectedly, rode in support of Donna and Boer flags. 
The church holds 500 people and all seats were filled, with people standing in the aisles too. People refused to speak on the record with the press, out of respect for Donna's family. By January 5, 2012, police announced that they had a person of interest in the slaying of Donna, but did not name the person. Investigators did state that they had interviewed Donna's estranged husband, but he had a solid alibi. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Trust me, I have been there and I still struggle with these issues. But BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you like it's been there for me. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, which is so convenient for me, and it really makes me feel comfortable. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you need to. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in LGBTQ plus matters. Grief, self-esteem, trauma, relationships, anxiety, you name it. Anything you share with them is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, and they're available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours. The best thing is it's secure, convenient, professional, affordable, and it's not a crisis line. Best of all, like I said, it's a truly affordable option. True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code TCFC. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com TCFC. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com TCFC to get 10% off your first month. Today's episode is brought to you by Beekeepers Naturals. Beekeepers is on a mission to reinvent your medicine cabinet with clean remedies that actually work. You and your family deserve to feel your best all day, every day which is why Beekeepers Naturals creates clean, science-backed remedies that naturally support your daily health. Like Bee Soothe Cough Syrup, the truly clean cough syrup that helps you get back on your feet. I try as much as possible to keep my voice healthy by using Bee Soothe for throat and immunity support. And the flavor is so much better than your standard cough syrup. It's naturally powered by nature's most powerful immune supporters, pure buckwheat honey, elderberry, chaga mushroom, bee propolis, and olive leaf extract. But Bee Soothe Cough Syrup isn't the only beekeeper's product I love. My family is obsessed with Bee Elixir Brain Fuel. It helps to naturally beat brain fog, find your flow, and deliver your A-game. We all take one shot first thing in the morning to stay energized, on task, and focused all day. So, are you ready to upgrade your medicine cabinet? This amazing cough syrup always sells out quickly. So don't delay, get yours today. Check out Beekeepers Naturals to try Bee Soothe Cough Syrup and discover other clean remedies your family will love. You can save 15% on your first order today by going to beekeepernaturals.com slash true crime. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S dot com slash T-R-U-E 
C-R-I-M-E, to get 15% off. Meet your new medicine cabinet with Beekeepers Naturals. The case essentially stalled for almost two years until an arrest warrant was issued for Kevin Duck. And on November 26, 2013, Kevin was arrested without incident in Burlington, Colorado. He was held on $250,000 bond. According to the arrest affidavit for him, cell phone records analyzed by the FBI were the biggest piece of evidence, especially a call made from Kevin's phone at 8.34 the morning Donna disappeared that originated a mile from where her body was found. Another call was made approximately 30 minutes later, which originated in roughly the same area where Donna's car was burned. The arrest warrant also noted Kevin had been late to work the morning after the Christmas party. Once arrested on the murder charge, Kevin was also charged with violation of probation from an unrelated case. He was sentenced to six years in prison for this violation. The probation stemmed from charges in 2009 for aggravated assault. Kevin's sister, whose name is not provided, once tried to intervene in a bad relationship Kevin was having, and Kevin became violent. He woke their brother John by pointing a gun in his face and threatened to kill his sister. This became a physical altercation, with Kevin fighting both his sister and brother with a three-foot jack handle. The sister's injuries were so severe that she had to be hospitalized. For this, Kevin was charged with aggravated assault and given five years probation. John Duck also testified that as children, Kevin would mentally and physically abuse them. When John was seven years old, Kevin made some unreasonable demands of John and their sister. One time, when they did not comply, Kevin, at the time 17, took a shotgun, threatened to commit suicide, and locked himself in another room. He pulled the trigger. The two younger children were terrified and started beating on the door. When he finally opened the door, he was fine. He had fired the shotgun out the window. Amber Duck, Kevin's second wife, said that Kevin had subjected her and their children to violence throughout their marriage. Once, Kevin dragged a pregnant Amber down the stairs, threw her into the car, drove across town, and left her not far from where Donna's body was later found. Another time, Kevin had used a piece of plastic tubing to beat his two-year-old daughter so hard that her bottom was purple and she could not sit down. Amber also said that he had slapped their daughter so hard in the face one time that she flew across the room and landed on her back. Amber left the marriage when her parents threatened to take the children away if she stayed. Kevin was also accused of violating his probation by not reporting an address change to his probation officer and for not seeking permission to travel out of state. However, Kevin's attorney said that Kevin had addresses in Hot Springs and Louisiana because he worked on the pipeline. He had received 14 work permits from probation officials in the 18 months leading up to his arrest. Kevin told investigators, that Donna was pregnant at the time of her death. Unfortunately, due to missing body parts, 
it was impossible for the medical examiner to determine if this was true or not. Kevin had repeatedly told Donna to have an abortion, but she got mad each time. Former Hot Springs Village Police Department officer Tim Hickox was the only officer who testified about the alleged pregnancy as the defense steered clear of it. Before the trial occurred, Kevin Duck was released on a $150,000 bond in December 2013. Kevin's trial was initially scheduled for July 2014, but his defense attorneys requested a delay to review documents received in the discovery process. The judge granted the delay, and the trial was rescheduled for November 2014. The trial was then postponed again at the request of the prosecutor. The state was still awaiting evidence from the Federal Bureau of Investigations. The trial was delayed several more times, the last time for additional DNA testing. The defense wanted to test unidentified DNA found on Donna's clothing against that of the former chief of police. This goes back to allegations that the chief and Donna were having an affair. The test results were negative and have still not been matched to anyone. During the trial, FBI Special Agent William Shute testified that he could place Kevin's cell phone near the pond where Donna was found and twice near where her car was set ablaze on the morning of December 24, 2011. Shute was a specialist and had developed cellular radio telephone analysis in 2005 and helped found the FBI Cellular Analysis Survey Team in 2010. After the Christmas party in 2011, Kevin made numerous calls that Shute was able to track from the victim's home, the village's West Gate, Highway 7, and Highway 298. After more than four hours, a Garland County Circuit Court jury found Kevin Duck guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. Chief Deputy Prosecuting Attorney Joe Graham told the jury before it began deliberations, life means life. Donna Natsky was, by all accounts, a wonderful mother, sister, daughter, and friend. Her two youngest sons played football at Jesseville High School, and she attended all the games she could. When Donna was 35, she gave her father one of her kidneys, which gave him another 10 years. He passed away not long before Donna was murdered. She was also beloved by her friends and colleagues. Her three sons, Brandon and Aaron Natsky and Ronnie Moeller wrote an impact statement, which Brandon read in court. Brandon, who was only 17 at the time of his mother's death, was frequently overcome with emotion as he read the impact statement. It read, quote, The worst experience of our life was trying to act like everything was okay on Christmas back in 2011, trying to open gifts and enjoy our time together when we were all hurting on the inside. The thought of our mother not being there next to us was tearing us apart. The thought of never seeing her or finding her took its toll on us to the point that every Christmas isn't the same anymore. That because of one man, she is gone. Christmas will be forever tarnished in our lives. The lies in the news in the courtroom is not who she was. There were so many details that were left out about our mother. She was the kind of mother who never bought herself another piece of clothing just so she could ensure her sons had what they needed. She really is the person we strive to be like, 
the one who is unselfish and puts everyone first, the one who will talk to anyone to make them feel important, the lady who worked hard to make sure her sons were happy, even if it brought her to exhaustion, the person who smiled and laughed and could start a party by herself. She was the kind of person who was who she was, and nobody was going to change that. Then, Brandon looked toward Kevin and said he had been touched by Luther Duck embracing his son after the verdict, particularly because Luther Duck had been on the Natsky side through it all. Brandon continued, just like Luther did with his son, God is looking down at Kevin in the same manner, that he has made the same mistake, a mistake he can never take back, but he still loves his son. So I pray for Kevin. And I pray that through this decision, and as he goes forward with his life, that he knows there's a father out there, that there's a God who still truly loves him. Kevin's attorney, Clay Jansky, said after the trial that Brandon had delivered the best impact statement he had ever heard. Anything negative about the victim had been unintentional. Jansky said, It's one of the few trials where the credibility of the victim was really not put into play. I think the only bad thing said about her at all was that she liked drinking Miller Lite. In my book, that's not a bad thing, other than I prefer Coors Light. My client never told me a bad word about Donna Natsky. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John. Content editing by Brittany Martinez. Produced by the best in the business, Nico or Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. And if you want to see some editing behind the scenes of what makes this podcast what it is and other great podcasts out there, head to Twitch.com and search for We Talk of Dreams, where you can see Nico do the amazing things he does behind the scenes.